several years back, a few research conducted a, a poll concluded from it that the younger generations generally have a more positive view than their elders on a number of institutions that play a big part in American society. Except for two. That is new media and churches. For example, in, in 2010, nearly three out of four 73% of millennials agree that churches have a positive impact on our country, on our society. Five years later, in 2015, 55% of millennials agree that churches have a positive impact on our country and our society. In five years, that's an 18% drop. And I would probably guess that that trend has continued. The, the negative view of churches and their impact has continued to decrease. Now, we could spend a long time speculating why that's the case. We could talk about reasons why trust in the church and whether it's good for society or not, why that has continued to decline. Or, we can look at the first church. At Pentecost, and learn what the church is designed to be. Because after the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, the church grew from 120 to 3,120. This early church at this point was a church that was created. And sustained by the Holy Spirit. It's a good church to look at to say, what is God's design for the church? What is it to be? And specifically, what characterizes a spirit filled church? What characterizes a Holy Spirit filled church? First, Devotion to God's Word. We're going to start with devotion. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves. The word devoted means to be committed to. Means to be committed to. When you're devoted to something, that something is the object of your attention, is the object of your focus, is the object of your affection. The reality is that everyone at every moment of every day is devoted to something. You may be uh, devoted to success in your career, meaning that success in your career is the object of your devotion. And really, what we're talking about here is worship. And we're talking about worship. Verse 43 describes it well. In awe, Take a lot of your soul. That's worship language. These believers were in awe of what God was doing with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 47, they were praising God. Devotion is worship. And so you can be devoted to success in your career. You may be devoted to making money. Or making money would be really the object of your devotion or your worship. 
You can be devoted to exercise. You can be devoted to grades. In other words, an academic success. And every moment of every day, something is the object of your greatest attention, focus, and affection. That's what it means to be devoted. And devotion doesn't just shape what you do, it certainly does. But devotion shapes who you become. You actually become what you're devoted to. Now we see the truth. You become what you're devoted to play out in the lives of two very influential people. Let's start with the evolutionary scientist Charles Darwin. Listen to what he said in his autobiography. My chief enjoyment and sole employment throughout life, that would be in other words, what he was devoted to. Right? The object of his affections and his focus and attention has been scientific work. From this work he added, I am never idle, as it is the only thing which makes life endurable to me. But think about that as a question. What makes life endurable to you? It's going to get at what is what are you devoted to? What effect did Darwin devoting himself to scientific work have on the person he became? Listen to what he said next. Up to the age of 30, poetry gave me great pleasure. And I took intense delight in Shakespeare. But now, for many years, I found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. This loss is a loss of happiness. I became a withered leaf for every subject except science. Which he goes on to say, he, he says with a great deal. Now, consider how this proof you become what you're devoted to. Let's look how it plays out in another life of an individual person. This would be the old theologian, Pastor Jonathan Edwards, age 19. Edwards wrote this Resolve to cast my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him, and consecrate myself wholly to him. And then later in Edward's life, he reflected on how this object of worship, or this object of devotion, influenced the kind of person he became. He said this, It brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and lavishment to the soul. In other words, it made the soul like a field for a garden. Two gifted men. One ended up a leather One ended up a garden. The object of their ultimate devotion shaped the very kind of men that they were to become. And so it is with you. What you are ultimately devoted to will shape who you become. So devotion, which is personal, identity, who you become. Devotion also creates constraints or brings constraints. 
everyone is devoted to something that they love it. And when you're devoted to something, that's going to bring the strength. So these early believers, let's move on, verse 42, they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. To the apostles' teaching. The apostles taught the believers in this early church what they had heard from Jesus. So it was the teachings of Jesus given to the apostles and then taught to the people. And eventually, the apostles' teaching was put in written form, which is the New Testament of your Bible. So their devotion to the apostles' teaching was ultimately them being devoted to God's Word. Being devoted to God's Word. Devotion to God's Word places constraints on us. Meaning that when you submit yourself to God's Word and align your life with His Word, it will create restraints. And that is one of the reasons why many people reject the Bible. And they reject God's Word because it does place restraints in the name of freedom and happiness. But I'm going to reject constraints, especially the constraints of the Bible. If freedom is defined as an absence of constraints, then no one is free. Because everyone is devoted to something, and that devotion creates constraints. Let's, let's think about the kind of stereotypical picture of freedom. The person that says, you know what, I'm sick of having a boss. I'm sick of corporate America. I'm sick of having a job where I have to get, I'm going to be free. I'm going to live off the land. And I'm just going to be free and be my own boss. Kind of that stereotypical picture of freedom. That person, though, is not free to get a job in corporate America. And that person has created constraints by their devotion to a certain a philosophy of life. The point is, is that when we are devoted to something, it creates constraints. So, when you reject God's Word and reject the constraints of God's Word, you have to understand that you're not getting rid of constraints, you're just replacing those constraints with a different set of constraints that you can try. The question becomes, not how do I get rid of constraints, but what are the right and life-giving constraints? What are the constraints that give me Life. Suppose a skydiver at 10,000 feet announces to the rest of the group that he's skydiving with. I'm going to be free today, off with this parachute. Now, what's the reality here? The skydiver is bound to a higher law, which is the law of gravity. What is the law of gravity? The constraint of the parachute actually brings life because it honors God's creation design. The absence of the constraints of the parachute actually brings death because it violates God's creation design. Back in the 1920s, there was a huge split in the church. I say church, meaning a global church in the 1920s. 
It started in the Presbyterian Church and then quickly moved to other denominations. And the split in the church was over devotion to God's work. Based on new scientific discoveries and based on the moral pressures of the day, there was a, a certain group of churches that said, we no longer believe there's miracles. Science has shown that. We've never experienced miracles. So we're going we're gonna to remove the parts of God's Word that speak of miracles. And we are going to retain the parts of God's Word that speak of goodwill towards others. The other group of churches says, no, this is God's Word. We are going to honor every last bit of it as God's Word and as authority. What happened is that those, those the subset of churches that kind of got rid of half of the Bible, got rid of those constraints based on their experience. And what happened over time is those churches lived and died. The churches that honored God's word and said, This is God's word from start to finish actually flourished and grew. Rejecting the constraints of God's work based on your experience is like taking a piece of tissue paper and throwing it in the fire. What happens when you throw a piece of tissue paper in the fire? It erupts. Big flame. How long does it last? Maybe two seconds. Right? And the tissue. Is gone, fire is gone. Embracing the constraints of God's word is like taking a good, seasoned piece of wood and throwing it in fire. It burns strong and it burns long. The point is, is that God, the constraints of God's word are life giving. Their life giving constraints. These are the constraints in God's word that actually bring life. There's a life constraint. And so a spiritual church is devoted to God's word. People devoted to the word because that's where life comes from. What characterizes a spiritual church? Devotion to God's word. But second, devotion to fellowship. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now, what is fellowship here? When we hear this word, we immediately think people just gathering together, right? Social, a social gathering. That, people gathering together, is actually a result of what this word fellowship means. In the, in the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, the word here is koinonia. What is point in it? Well, if we drop down to verse 44, it helps us a lot of definition. And all believed were together and had all things in common. That word common in the original language of the New Testament is koinos. It's the adjective form of koinonia. So when you put those together, here's a working definition for fellowship. Here's a working definition. Sharing in common of something with someone else. These believers gathered 
because they shared in common something with each other. And what was that something they shared in common? It was the resurrected Christ. It was in their midst. So fellowship is sharing in common the resurrected Christ. Like they gathered because they were sharing in common Christ. They didn't share Christ in common because they gathered. Their gathering was a product of them sharing in common the resurrected Christ. Read verse 44 where it says, All who believed were together. That word there, together, is much more than they were just physically in the same place. They were in harmony with one They were deeply connected because they held Jesus in common. During my freshman year, College in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I experienced something that I had never experienced before. Sitting in the morning, I'm looking out the window, and these white flakes start falling from the sky on the boilers in South Florida. I had never seen snow fall. One time in my life in Huntsville, South Carolina, I had seen it on the ground. I never see it fall. So I see these white lights falling. I run out my dorm room, I race down the stairs to the front of the dorm on the steps, and I'm looking out just in awe as the snow is falling. Never seen it. Standing next to me is another guy who is seeming to experience the same thing. I don't look at all his face, and so I just said, Hey, you seen snow before? He's like, Nope. I said, Where are you from? He said, South Florida. I said, me too. Now listen, we would have never connected apart from sharing in common that snow. We would gather on the steps of the dorm next to each other because we were sharing in common that snow. So it is with the spiritual church. We gather. Because we share in common the resurrected Christ. We don't gather because we have common interests. So that may be true here and there. We gather on Sundays. We gather throughout the week in community groups because we share in common the resurrected Christ. How do you know if a church is spirit filled? Now I know this is impossible. Just put on the same spot of imagination for a But imagine if the presence of Jesus were removed from a church and people. That will never happen. Imagine it does. Would that church split, fall apart, die? I would say that if it's a Spirit-filled church, or if it was a spirit-filled church, the answer is absolutely 100%. Because the relationships in that church were held together by Jesus, not by common interests. But fellowship is sharing in common the resurrected Christ. And ultimately, relationships in church in a Bible study, in community groups, are held together by Christ, not from Jesus. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, says it this way. 
Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be where they become really conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer The pandemic over the past year and a half has revealed the gospel of church communities. Those church communities that are functionally held together by common interests. The pandemic has revealed the facade of that commonality. Because the, the, the politics of the pandemic, the polarization of the pandemic, have been way too much pressure. And it's just absolutely revealed the facade of commonality and brought withering and death to those communities. Church communities that are functionally held together by the resurrected Christ, not common interest. The pandemic. The polarization and the politics of it have actually highlighted the fact that relationships are often held together by Jesus and not common interests. Churches have flourished and they've grown in. Fellowship is sharing in common the resurrected Christ with others. What are the practices of fellowship? What are the practices of this kind of sharing in common? The resurrected Christ. Two are named at the end of verse 42. They devote themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Breaking of bread and prayers are subsets fellowship. In other words, those are expressions of sharing in common the resurrected Christ, which is fellowship. So, breaking of bread is actually mentioned twice in this passage. The first in verse 42 is the breaking of bread. This is referring to the Lord's Supper in this early church's formal worship services that probably happened in the temple courts, where they would share a common meal, where they would eat of the bread that represented Christ giving his life for them, where they would drink the cup which represented Christ's blood being shed for them. And as they shared this common meal, it represented the Christ they were sharing in common. And the meal, which it does today, strengthened them to keep Christ as their commonality. That's where the, the Lord's Supper plays into this fellowship. The breaking of bread in the Lord's Supper is a celebration of our unity in Christ, not our uniformity in life. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of our unity in Christ, not our uniformity in life. So there's formal worship, and then we see the breaking of bread in an informal worship setting. Like verse 46, 
and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They gathered daily to worship and prayer in the temple courts. Now, very different from the cultural setting of that They were in the village setting. They walked everywhere. They walked to the temple. Yeah, they would have the Lord's Supper or formal worship service, but it says they also gathered in each other's homes where they would drink bread. When they would enjoy a meal. It wasn't a formal Lord's Supper, but it was a meal that had the same meaning. This meal that we share, this common meal that we share, represents our sharing Christ in common. And so they met regularly in their homes. If you've ever been, uh, or if you're in a unified church, you can make this call. You are new to a community of things. And maybe you've experienced this in the past. You may walk into a community and feel very different. And usually when we walk into a setting and we feel different, we want to what? Get the out Gone. But what I want you to see is when you walk into a group and, and feel different from others, that's actually a good thing, that's not a problem. Because community groups are not gathered around common interests or even common demographics or even common seasons of life. They're gathered around the resurrected Christ. And so there's going to be differences. Second practice of fellowship we see. Um, sharing and coming to the resurrected Christ are the prayers. Like fellowship, breaking the bread, and the prayers. And the prayers. Their prayers in the formal worship service or in the informal setting of their homes. These prayers were an expression of them sharing in common the resurrected Christ. It's a view of prayer that I think we oftentimes lose. The prayer is actually an expression of fellowship. It is an expression of sharing the common and the resurrected Christ. Now, you say, how? How can prayer function that way? John Piper gives some really helpful news on how this works in prayer. He says this Prayer is a wartime walking talking. Not a domestic intercom for ringing up the butler to change the furniture. It is a wartime walkie-talkie to call things firepower because the enemy is greater than we are. If you try to turn this into a domestic intercom to bring another pillow, it malfunctions. And you wonder why. It is not made to be an intercom, it is made to be a wartime walking When you share in common the resurrected Christ, you and I receive our orders from the same general, so to speak. We receive our orders from the same general, Jesus Christ. And he gives us a, a walking talk. He gives us prayer for us to use as we're all in our different trenches in the middle of this battle. And that when we pray, we're not only connecting to Christ, who is our king and our general, but we also are connected to one another. The prayer is this great unifier as we are talking in the midst of this battle that one, we're connected to Christ, 
Two, we're connecting each other. We need each other. And so prayer is this wonderful expression of sharing and talking the resurrection. Now, what's the result of this kind of devotion to self? These early believers being devoted to the Word and being devoted to this kind of sharing and talking the resurrection Christ. What we see here is there are two really powerful results. One is generosity. And two is, is growth. Generosity. Look at verse 45. As they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, these early Christians were liquidating assets to help fellow believers who were in need. In fact, two chapters later in Acts 4, we see that a man by the name of Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him, took the proceeds of that sale of money, and gave it to the apostles, the elders of the church, the elders of this first church. Our deacons fund that we collect for every communion Sunday, or you can do it online through giving, our deacons fund is an expression of this. It's God's people giving Money to the church, to the deacons, who then used it to meet the needs of believers in the church and even relationally that are connected beyond. These early Christians were generous, incredibly generous, radically generous. Now, two comments here. Number one, this, this wasn't communism. Which oftentimes people read this and they say, there you go, that's communism. No. Communism is the sharing of goods, but it is an enforced sharing on the basis that no one can own property or own anything. Communism is compulsory, has nothing to do with terrorism. Nor is this socialism. Socialism acknowledges the right to private property, but then it compels you to give a certain amount or percentage above an amount to others. Socialism is compulsory. has nothing to do with generosity. This is generosity. You say, why? Why was this early church so generous? Why were they so generous? I think there's two reasons. Number one, they did not claim exclusive rights to their property, to their possessions, to their money. Because they shared in common the resurrected Christ, they knew that Christ had rights over their life and their possessions and their money. And if he needed it, they would gladly give it. Because Christ is generous. Jesus Christ is incredibly generous. And if you are in Christ, you've experienced that. He gave his very life for you. That's true. That's the first reason. Why they understood that it belonged to Christ, and if Christ needed it for his people, then they were going to give it. Number two, though, they were generous because this early church operated as a family. When you read this passage, if you read it in the context of a biological family, it makes total sense. I mean, you think about if you have a family, your spouse, your kids, and how your family interacts. This reads like a course. And this is, yes, normal. Of course, it's going to happen in the family. 
So we we leave this passage and go, this is crazy. I just kind of sounds like crazy talk. It's because we've lost sight of the church being the family of God. When you understand the church of God being the family of God, then this passage makes complete sense. Yes, I will give whatever it takes for my brother, for my sister, for my spiritual mother, my spiritual dad, my spiritual daughter, my spiritual son. I, I will do whatever it takes because of the family. And then the second is all devotion to this kind of fellowship is grace. Verse 27 describes it. Praise God, and I be faithful with all the people. And the Lord added to their number every decade. No, 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 not every year, every month, no, daily. The Lord added to their number daily. Those who are being saved. This community's presence and witness was so infectious. So infectious. Their devotion to God's Word. Their devotion to fellowship, to sharing and coming and resurrecting Christ. It was so infectious. The world around took notice and said, I want it. What's at the center of this? That's Christ. This kind of growth happens under the Lord's sovereign name. He added to their number. They weren't adding to their number. He was adding to their number. But this kind of growth happens under the Lord's sovereign hand when God's people are being the church, not just doing. Oh, Father, thank you for such a beautiful picture of this early spiritual church. Father, we long to be in this kind of community, devoted to your word, recognizing that your word brings constraints, but your life is in constraints. Father, we long to be in this community that shares in common the resurrected We long to be a community where we understand that we are held together by Jesus, not by our colleagues. Father, I pray for those that are here that are wrestling with the constraints of your word. Are wrestling with the constraints you place on life. I pray by the Holy Spirit that you would help them to see that your constraints are life. You made us, you designed us, and you know what brings us joy and happiness. And it's found through your word in relationship with Christ. So would you draw those that are investigating and that are resting with your constraints? Would you draw them to yourself that they would see your constraints as life? Father, as we enjoy this Lord's Supper, it is their confession and our profession that our gathering and that our community is held together by you, Jesus, and you, Lord. We pray this all in your name.